get up, gotta get out, gotta get home before the morning comes. What if I'm late? Got a big day, gotta get home before the sun comes up. Up and away, got a big day, sorry, can't stay. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Genre Equality. I'm Hitzer. I'm Hadi. I'm Isa. Um, before we begin, we just have to shout out. Um, on the day we were recording this, it was the 91st Academy Awards, and what up? we got to shout out the superheroes of color yeah. who won uh, a bunch of awards. This year, yeah, um, Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse what, by what? far our favorite, uh, at least animated movie of last year, if not our favorite superhero movie in general, mm-hmm. won best animated picture. First time in like fucking ten years that Pixar didn't win. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I uh, mean for good reason though. No, Pixar of course. won for. I mean they've been excellent we- la. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. But, but I mean, it's just nice to see some diversity. But Spider-Verse was. On a whole other level uh. Oh for sure yeah. For sure There's no way you could have Taken away I taken that away right Like even the feel itself As good as it was Didn't quite Reach the same standard That Spider-Verse has set mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see um, How future <coughs> Winners look like You know Indeed indeed uh, Also we got a shout out All the wins for Black Panther Okay um, forever we we did discuss a bit that we didn't think Black Panther deserved to be nominated for Best Picture yeah. mm-hmm. amongst that crop. Um, I mean, it was certainly better than things like Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, I was just going to say that. <laughs> and eventual winner, Green Book. Uh, yeah. Which is, in itself is fantasy, so I guess it's genre. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of controversy la, that surrounded that movie. La. Correct, yeah, correct. Yeah. But with Black Panther, at least with the Technical Craftsman Award, or shall I say women, mm-hmm. because um, very deserved wins for Best Costuming for Ruth Carter. Yep, makes sense. And also Production Design. Yeah, so I mean, historic for I mean, groundbreaking at least for women of color, and not just for, for superhero movies, which wow, is Black Panther. That's a revelation, man. Of course, yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, Domi Shi, who directed uh the very very cute uh Bao, one oh, for yeah, best yeah, yeah. animated short. Short, yeah. Yeah. So uh, another woman of color winning there an Oscar. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, brilliant stuff. Um, this is the year that uh I think superheroes of co- superheroes of color really dominated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and we can't wait to see what's what's next. Uh. I mean clearly uh, the Academy Awards is not shy from not shying away from genre anymore. Yeah. I mean as we saw with get out last year. I mm-hmm. mean it's slowly warming up la. Yeah, yeah you know I, I mean know. there's I know. still a lot of, like uh hereditary was a big snap. Correct. Yeah. Uh, an Oscar for Tony Collette. Yeah, for example. Uh, hashtag which is you know, I, I feel like I mean I, I love Oliver Coleman and the favorite yeah, yeah, yeah. But I thought Tony Collette should have had that in the back. Correct. See, so yeah. I mean, slowly they're slowly warming up. Correct. Yeah, I, I think horror is still the 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 busted stepchild genre. Yeah, people, pe- yeah, people still look down on that man. I know, you but know. I mean, from what from the plethora of like movies we had mm. the past few years, it seems that horror is stepping up, lah. Mm. It's mm. been watershed yeah. last two years. More yeah. artful, lah. And More and, artful, yeah. and next month we'll actually be covering Jordan Peele's new movie Us. Ooh. Uh, which I mean, considering his track record, uh, yeah. he might even get an, another Oscar next year, mm. or at least be an Oscar contender next year for mm. Us. He's yeah. producing uh Twilight Zone, right? And hosting, he, right? Uh, he's hosting Twilight Zone. His production company, Monkey Paw Productions, right. is producing, yeah. and he's also the showrunner for oh, it. Oh right! Wow, that's insane. Yeah, he's he's had a very very busy time. He's he was also gonna be in the new Toy Story. And just to imagine that he yeah. started on Mad TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are you doing, Keegan Michael? 
other he, things, other things. Well, wasn't wasn't he in that new Netflix thing? What college? Uh, friends, from friends, friends from college. Wasn't he? Pre- it's three seasons wasn't in, and he in, just got cancelled. Wasn't he in Predator? Keegan Michael Key was in Predator, which is genre. <laughs> Keegan Michael go. Key is also in a TV show that I kind of like last year called Impulse, which was on YouTube. There we go. Uh, which is a kind of a spin off from Jumper. I mean, it's a bit. I mean, his 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 career trajectory is a bit different from Jordan Peele. Oh, for sure. Uh, yes, slightly. I mean, smaller. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, still successful. Like, still working, of course, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and of course, both Key and Peele are going to be in a new Toy Story. Anyway, um, let's yeah, back d- to the. Yeah, back to our regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> we had to divert for the Oscars for a bit, yeah. Uh, this month might be the shortest month of the year. But yeah. I mean lots, lots and lots to talk about Particularly with comic book adaptations mm-hmm. We have uh, some interesting ones Like uh, Umbrella Academy uh, Manga adaptations Like Alita Battle Angel yep. Which has been surprisingly Successfully received yeah. Well received amongst manga fans Of course a ton of animated sequels uh, How to Train Your Dragon Recently wrapped up its franchise The Lego Movie 2 came out uh, and a few other smallest gems Like uh, one of our favourite shows Counterpart We'll be talking about mm-hmm. uh, Might even be its series finale We're not sure yet We'll, we'll discuss it, more It's a lot of like mystery behind it <laughs> I know Just like the show itself Yeah exactly uh, Of course uh, Russian Doll mm. uh, Etc But let's begin with The return of a long awaited show Oh no um, It's been six long years And uh, Young Justice is finally back mm-hmm. uh, Season 3 subtitled Outsiders, Outsiders. Is finally back on the DC Universe um, Which is the streaming service yeah. that they have la, Which you know Titans is on And Doom yeah. Patrol is on um, And I do have to say that I feel really uh, happy That one of my favourite shows from way back in the Well I mean six years, six la, so, years you know, I guess it's, it's back in the day la. Yeah. Yeah. It's back uh, And it seems as, as if the show's requisite time jump yeah. Has allowed the team to you know mature even further yeah. mm. um, Even as the I guess the big boys in the Justice League Fall apart due to moral and political differences Yeah, or a bit of their own civil war yeah. shall we say um, Outsiders uses the League's schism As like a backdrop for our uh, hero's journey mm. And to illustrate how each of them has become prepared To handle situations that their mentors Perhaps couldn't or wouldn't mm-hmm. Uh, and in other ways Showing their frustrations At having to be The grown ups now Correct Because they used to be The kids right yeah. uh, Caring for a new team Of ragtag kids Who are each refugees Or castaways In their own way Yeah um, So what do you guys Think about Young Justice uh, Season 3 um, Surprisingly accurate To the comic books right Yes mm. Actually right? really, Quite close Quite close uh, There's a plethora Wow well, I used the word plethora twice Plethora of new characters mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, And the best part Is that it doesn't Get confusing or it doesn't uh, How they spaced it out Is quite nice love. Yeah mm. I know? think it's quite Because Young Justice Has always um, yeah, A large cast right Yeah a yeah. large cast And they do have A lot Well not just the time skips Between the um, seasons. seasons itself Right yeah. Like even within The arcs themselves They take kind of a break They don't tell you The full story They kind of uh, In media rest right Like in the middle of the story That's where they start And um, I'm not sure Whether it's because They expect People to have some foreknowledge of what is going on uh, when they come in, but they use that to a very effective degree, I find. So much so that some of the more difficult parts of uh, the story that they would have to cover from the comics itself, right, are, are conveniently left out, right? And, uh, and I think that kind of helps with the flow overall without going too far or too deep into any one character in particular. Yeah, uh, I mean, I do agree. And I, I think it's also truly remarkable that Outsiders feels like a natural new season of a show that went off air in 2012. Mm-hmm. And also a totally new series designed for 2019's more complex political landscape. Yeah. Um, I think 
though at times it's uh you know it has this covert missions its team is kind of splintered into many different directions there is you know batman inc there's our yeah. new group there's a a ton of new factions within mm. our own factions lah uh and it's also focusing on geopolitical crisis yep. in a way that i haven't seen a young justice do before it almost like i mentioned earlier it almost feels like their version of captain america civil war like, yeah. especially within the first episode you know where basically the team splits in two mm-hmm. you know uh, do you go with batman or you do you go, go with aqualad who's the new aquaman sorry. um i don't have to say that young justice outsiders deals with the day-to-day nitty-gritty of meta-human politics on an international and legal scale yeah. better than the mcu did at yes. least you know it, it, it deals with it in with more detail Yep. I mean this I, I feel like um, If you put the flashes uh, Live action flash hmm. Idea of metahumans This feels like a more expanded uh, Metahumans commentary la, hmm. Right I mean We delve into the history of the metahumans yep. You know with uh, Vendor Savage hmm. With Darkseid and all that stuff And the current trafficking of kids And the know? current And you how the metahumans are being used as Yeah. War soldiers, soldiers lah, basically. Yeah, yeah. You know, not just on this planet, but on other but planets. Other planets, as well. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I do have to say that their treatment, the the small little two episode character arc for Black Lightning is is better than anything the actual oh, live the action show has <laughs> ever done. You know. Yeah, I was just gonna say that. Yeah. Uh, what what about you, Isa? Any other thoughts? Uh, I think just generally, Young Justice has brought back right what we've always loved from the series thus far, right? Mm. And uh, at the beginning, um, I think pretty much everyone, oh no, we've got another like DC. Animated series uh, for kids, but it turns out to be so so much more than that. Mm. Uh, I think it's interesting the way that they've t- taken to you know quite literally the term outsiders, right, and the whole idea of uh, refugees and trafficking. Uh, definitely more reflective of our uh, modern day context. I mean, Halo, for example, yeah. you know, yep. it looks a lot like the modern refugee, like, yeah, you know, yeah. the the Muslim girl who's outcast and uh, always and dying, it, and always <laughs> dying. Yeah, you know, uh, and also you have uh, oh, who was shot by a random European guy. Yes. Uh, then you also have Forager, who is the the cute member this time. Mm. Uh, I love Forager. He he's he's really adorable. He's, a new god, right? He's not really a new god. He is a sub bug species on New Genesis that oh. is total. That is in conflict with the new gods. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, because yeah. Of, obviously you know they're of a lower class system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but the thing is, Young Justice, Young Justice's cast is so ridiculously large, right? And this season's increasing focus on even villains' motivation, like you mentioned, Vandal Savage's uh, backstory, for instance, makes the cast even larger. And so sometimes I feel like the focus is a bit disparate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and if the show didn't present itself three episodes at a time, that's how they were released. Uh, yeah. It wasn't one episode per week. It was three episodes yeah. per week. Yep. So that allowed for more cohesion with the story. So you didn't have to wait a week for, you know, random story and then random correct, story correct. and then a random story about the Green Arrows doing security, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Which was a fun com- comedy relief yeah. episode. Like, but if I had to wait a week in between just to see that, I would have been pissed off, you know. Yeah. Yeah, um. So I mean, in conclusion, what are your thoughts about Young Justice season three? I mean, this is only half a season, right? Yes. Uh, the next half of the season will pick up this coming June. Exactly. Yeah. So for this half of the season, uh, so the mid-season finale, for example, mm-hmm. wrapped up really nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, every character was given opportune moment to shine, lah. Mm. Um, Tough to do. Such, very, such exactly. A huge cast, yeah. yeah. This is basically an ensemble cast, lah. Mm. I mean, all this bin, lah. But this is like a really big ensemble cast. Yeah, man. Like when you have a whole like three episode arc on like the light, you know, <laughs> and yeah. all that stuff, and still make it really, really um engaging. Mm. I would never think that I would actually sympathize with Vendor Savage. Neither <laughs> did I. Yeah. But it was a very good humanizing arc for him, right? Yeah, mm. correct. So anyway, uh. 
all in all, Young Justice, I think, after six years, has lived up to the hype, lah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were really hyping for this this show, lah. Mm-hmm. A lot yeah. of people wanted it back desperately. Yeah. And I think DC really DC Universe, right? That's the streaming service. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it really, really delivered, lah. Yeah. How would you rate it? Uh, I'll give it a good seven and a half out of ten. Nice. Yeah. How about you? As a final thoughts and a rating? Oh yeah, I I th- I'm I'm curious to see where they go from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do hope that they don't get buried under the weight of their cast, mm-hmm. uh, the FX expanding cast. So I'm curious to see how they're gonna take the next half of the season. Whether they're gonna kind of like dive in and focus a bit more. Um, that's what I'm hoping for. But so far, so good. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, it's a seven point five for me as well. Yes, I mean, um, I thought. It balanced its many storylines very well, from the Makovia coup uh, to the yeah. meta human trafficking rings to the lights nefarious slash slightly noble agenda, yeah. uh, to the looming threat of dark side, and mm. of course uh, Judas contract, which we assume is coming the up. Next you know. part, like, yeah. Yep. Yeah, uh, and it did so very well in thirteen episodes, and I'm I'm very sure as all previous Young Justice seasons have done, the final thirteen episodes are just going to ramp up and be very climactic and, and quite epic. Yep. Um, cinematic confirmed. Cinematic, yeah. Uh, so if if this particular thirteen episode arc felt incomplete, that's why it's only yeah. the first half Correct. of the season. Uh, I can't wait for season. Uh, well, part two of season three. Um, this show is so solid and so consistent. Uh, it's a seven point five out of ten for me as well. Nice, unanimous seven point five. Yeah, I mean a very very solid show. Perhaps not the best Young Justice season I've seen, but I mean. I haven't seen the full season yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's really solid. We'll we'll of course get back to it once uh, Young Justice wraps up its season, um, in around September, I think. I think so. So yeah. we will definitely get back to this. Uh. Definitely. Uh, we'll be talking about a lot of exciting returning series this this month, uh, on this episode. Uh, and yeah, and Young Justice is just one of them, lah. But as far as first seasons are concerned, yes. Uh, 2019's first great new genre show is Netflix's Russian Doll. I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, it is m- maybe not even just the first great genre show of the year, but I think the first great new show of the year. Period. Um, it's created by Natasha Natasha Leone, who you may recognize as uh, Nikki from Orange Is the New Black, and Amy Fuller, who is uh, yeah. most famously from SNL and Parks and Recreation, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russian Doll is a new time loop dramedy in the vein of Groundhog Day. Um, the series concerns Nadia, who goes for her 36th birthday party, only to end up dying and reliving the same day over and over, over again. again. Um, first off, I have to say that what impressed me the most was that it manages to avoid the kind of um, tried and true tropes of time loop narratives yes. to offer kind of a warm and fresh take on the Groundhog Day concept. Yeah. Um, it never feels repetitive, and every new reset brings new scenarios. Correct. Uh, it's uh, quite acerbic in its writing, uh, affecting emotionally, uh, and also richly rewarding once, uh, like it starts to imply, you uh, you peel back the layers of the titular Russian doll, which is Natasha Leone's character Nadia. Um, what do you guys think about uh, the first season of Russian Doll? Uh, Natasha, the I mean the character, mm. um, is quite. What's her name? Nadia, uh, Nadia, right? Yeah. Nadia is perhaps unforgiving. Uh. I mean mm. the the way she's written is very like flawed, very very truthful and real. Yeah, I feel like I've you met a lot mean? of these kind of like New York Jewish girls. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this kind of mix of like a uh, vulgar bravado and also this tender intelligence Correct. that she kind of exudes. Uh, yeah, it, it's I mean, like on that very weird like line of likable and like I cannot stand this woman. Mm. Yeah, 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 you know. Um, but overall, the writing is solid. Yep. Um. Throughout the entire season, uh, it's very easy to watch. 
eight episodes yeah. at only twenty minutes. Like this is mm. this is what you call a binge worthy show, lah. For mm. sure, you know? yeah. easy to binge. Yeah. yeah, it's like glow, you know. What I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it doesn't. Yeah, doesn't. And and the other thing is, um, I like that it was. I I like the idea of it being nearly all women, like Correct. the directors all women, mm-hmm. the creators, uh, the creators all women. Writers, yeah. Um, Natasha I mean, Leon wrote this particular character and story. It's sort of based on her own life story. Yeah. Um. She, if you don't recognize <laughs> her, she was. Yeah, I mean, without the time loop thing lah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, she she suffered from addiction, yeah. um, drugs and alcohol. Yeah. If you don't remember, like um, back when she was six years old, she was actually a star on Pee Wee's Playhouse. Oh. Natasha no. Leon. Um. And then she got some smaller roles as she grew up, and oh. around her teens to her late twenties. To her oh. early 30s She actually disappeared For 15 years Because of drug addiction oh. Went through rehab And all of that Okay So this is kind of a, Her way to Write about her life Without being too personal while, while, still, while still addressing The same cycles Of self-destruction ah, That she okay, faced okay. Uh. I yeah. mean that explains The cathartic nature Of this the whole series la. Yeah, mm, um, yeah. Um, What about you Aisa? Yeah what about you uh, I think it, It's such a compelling series Right uh, Because it's a train wreck <laughs> That you can't look away from yeah. That keeps repeating itself yeah. In various formats Right And and I just love that it, uh, As much as it was an Easy watch It was also extremely riveting mm-hmm. Like I, I I sat down and Cleared the entire thing At one go Right And I feel like it Maybe it does function A little bit better mm. uh, As um, One sit through Than perhaps watching A couple of episodes At a time mm. You know um, I think the dialogue is great I love the soundtrack Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's one of those things that really like um the the opening track I can't remember what it's called, but that stuck with me for weeks mm-hmm. after that right just because of the number of times that we had to go <laughs> yeah, through yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the beginning of that song yeah you know uh, uh there's very little to complain about uh of course this is just um one out of three seasons, seasons yeah, yeah right so I did take a little bit of issue I I understand that there's more to come and there's a lot of mysteries that need to be unraveled mm-hmm. I thought it was very neat for a time loop story mm-hmm. so far. Uh, I'm curious to see how they extend that into other seasons. Um, I wish there was a bit more closure with the finale. Mm. Uh, but uh, as we discussed before, you were saying that it's more of an emotional closure closure than it is like an actual like plot closure. I think um, without giving spoilers away with regards to the, her issues with her mother. Lah. Mm. And uh, basically this is this season is just a character study on Nadia as a character yeah. and unraveling the layers of what makes her tick, her issues, mm. you know, uh, her cycles of self-destructiveness, yeah. which is, you know, a literal and physical metaphor of the time loop resets. Lah. Uh, and she's so stupid with time loops also. She keeps killing herself in the same way. She never learns, right? Yeah. You know, it's very difficult for her to learn. Uh, but at the same time, also, it feels like an emotional climax, but not necessarily a climax to the overall mystery or overarching mystery of what is these time loops. Lah. Yeah. Um, and I think that will be explored in the subsequent seasons. I don't think they wanted to give it away so quickly. Yeah. Uh, but as a character study on, on Nadia and, and also of um, Ellen, uh, who is a character that we're introduced to in the fourth episode, I don't want to spoil how he's introduced because mm-hmm. there's a major spoiler. Yeah. But uh, he's a very interesting character. So almost a polar opposite of Nadia. Yeah. And I think the, the introduction of Ellen definitely helped to kind of even out mm-hmm. um, just the correct. The arcs mm. um, Once he comes into the story I was a lot more interested mm. uh, To see how that Goes complex uh, <coughs> How it will grow In complexity Yeah uh, But speaking of her Not learning it was kind of, it's, it's kind of ironic right Because she's a video game um, Developer Developer Yeah And like If you If you know If you were stuck in that You would kind of know right Because that's what Video games are basically about mm-hmm. uh, no, Just 
thought it was interesting. Yeah, it's her her issues lah. The uh, whole like replaying the the same thing over and over again. Yeah, like yeah. you should have learned something. Exactly, right? exactly. <laughs> like five or six times she dies the exact same way. Exactly. I know it's it's frustrating, but also like uh, once you learn about a character, you kind of get why oh, she's yeah, doing that. Yeah, you 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 are really self destructive. Correct. Like, you know the way that she smokes. So she can't way. help herself. She can't help herself. Yeah. Exactly. Like this this I think entire show is written very cere- cerebrally and he has yes. a puzzle box mystery structure, but it. Totally, totally hinges on Natasha Lyonne's performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think without it, this show wouldn't be successful. Uh, it's it's a spectacular lead performance, uh, and that's the real hook, you know. Yeah. Um, it's 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 a, I guess an existential character study. Yeah. Um, fundamentally, the show is about how people get stuck in all these self-defeating patterns yeah. and repeating the same mistakes over and over again, as we mentioned. Um, it's a metaphor for the cycle of addiction and how repressed trauma keeps you from growing. Mm. Um, I think it's funny. It's addictive. Uh, surprisingly sincere, despite Natasha Lyonne's cynical, yeah. cynical shell. Uh, much like Nadia, lah, you know. Um, with only eight twenty minutes episodes, eight twenty minute episodes. This is a very very easy binge, mm-hmm. uh, and a distinct in a distinctly New York story. Yeah. Uh, and I think it m- makes it very compelling and easy to watch. So I think I would definitely highly, highly recommend this. Yeah. Uh, it's a nine out of ten for me. Probably one nine. of the hi- one of the highest rated shows I will talk about this month. Okay. Yeah. What I'll give it a nine too, lah. I mean, it was close to perfection mm-hmm. in terms of everything. Like, there, I could, I cannot name a flaw for this. Can can barely name anything wrong with it, lah. Yeah. If not, I'll just be nitpicking, lah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The climax is maybe like you know you don't find out what the mystery is. Yeah, maybe, but that's know. fine. Yeah, yeah. Season one. Mm. Yeah, exactly. What about you, Isa? Uh, I'm gonna give it an eight point five. I do feel that some of the episodes suffered from a bit of a pacing problem. Uh, it just lingered a bit too long on some parts. But I'm really nitpicking, and yeah, uh, yeah eight point five is as high as I'm gonna go. Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, I'm going to be talking about another um, kind of show with a similar premise <laughs> later on. Um, almost exactly the same, to be Death honest. Happy Death Day to you. Happy Death Day Happy to Death. you. Uh, but there will be in a segment called Quick Hits. Yeah. I will quickly run through that. But I didn't have time to watch that. So yeah. Um, but speaking of uh, um, diverging timelines and, and <laughs> oh multiverses, no. uh, let's talk about one of my favorite shows that I've discovered over the last couple of oh, years. Yeah. Um, it's called Counterpart. It's something that I was very very high on last year So high on That I reviewed it twice On the show mm. I reviewed it myself On Quick Hits And then I forced uh, My co-host to watch it mm-hmm. uh, So that was season 1 uh, Season 2 is back on Stars. Uh, mm. I heard it's cancelled On Stars. Not so cancelled I mean This not renewed Not not picked up la, yeah, not Which picked is up. another word For cancelled uh, But the thing is The good news is that Fremantle Media owns This particular yeah. Um Show so it's IP. not owned by stars, so they could shop it around to Netflix or Hulu or Amazon or whatever network that they yeah. want to. Uh, so it can be saved. Yeah. But if it wasn't, uh, I think season two was a good capper to what has been a masterclass uh, show. Uh, I think counterpart with its escalating tension, masterful acting, mm-hmm. and detailed spycraft continues to uh, make this sci-fi espionage series the unlikeliest successor to the Americans I've ever seen, yeah. especially in season two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, J.K. Simmons astonishes by adding layers to his dual yeah. roles as undercover agents from alternate universes, as both versions of Howard Silk e- increasingly become immersed in each other's lives and personalities. So whereas the first season was about them, you know, showing the differences, mm-hmm. this season I think it was trickier because both of them started to behave more like each other. Yeah. Yeah. Although you can see where the differences are, but. It started. They started blending into each other's lives yeah. as their environment became more similar. I mean, because they were switched, lah. Exactly, yeah. lah. 
but the true trick of season two is that counterpart has become a true ensemble piece. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's no longer the J.K. Simmons show. Story, yeah. Correct. Yeah. And all the actors have significant roles to play. Some of them surprisingly significant. But this is a spy show, so I don't want to spoil the twists or hidden yeah, agendas yeah. and double we won't crosses. Spoil it, yeah. Uh, but I will have to say, like, even with its naughty conspiracies, yeah. uh, clever counterintelligence, counterpart remains emotionally grounded with uh, beautiful character studies of nature versus nurture, and the spiraling effects of small choices. Yeah. Mm. Uh, what do you guys think about season two and possibly the last season of counterpart? I want to talk about the the attention to detail again mm. uh, for counterpart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I love like how you know. I mean, they already established it in season one, you know, like the, the the little little differences in technology and all that in both sides. Yeah. Um. But like, how the flu epidemic was the reason why like certain things had to be different, you know, different yeah, la, Of course. You know, and had uh, the focus was on medical science instead of like mm. um consumer technology, you know, that sort of thing, and that's why they have different looking phones yep, and stuff yep. like that. Actually, it all can be traced back to one particular cassette tape that the father refused <laughs> to buy for a daughter. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, but you know, uh, that's a spoiler. Yeah, so yeah. I won't reveal how. But yeah. yeah, go ahead. Um, but apart from that, the world building this season, you know, how they expanded onto the, you know, uh, both Prime and Alpha, mm. um, was great. Um, oh, but the characters, the new characters involved this mm. this season, um, the the whole Mira story storyline, the yeah. whole yeah, Mira, tra- tragic villain. Uh, what yeah. the hell? The the whole uh, Emily, you know, yes. on mm. both sides. Yep, how the yep. um, I the Comatos ex Comatos Emily. Yeah, and yeah, how like she's slowly yeah. figuring out like, wait, you are my husband. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> like it was not very hard because like how it, it was pretty obvious. Right? Yeah, like but he doesn't in, cook. In know? the midst of everything that she's trying to piece together about her life, there's some gl- just glaring things, right? Mm. That that's popular. But you didn't used to do that. You never spoke yeah. to me like that. You know, why don't you cook? Yeah, you know the kind of little little. Thing. So that was like little nitpicks. I like, uh, even Peter Quayle's character yeah. mm. had really significant growth. Um, we met Peter Ko from the other side also. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was interesting. Uh, wow, it, this season was just full of surprises and twists, lah. Mm. It's very hard to talk about it without spoiling it. Yeah. So, but then what? Uh, it's a must watch. I'm just so sad that not many people have caught up to counterpart. Mm. Like it's still a relatively small audience that it watches is. it. It is. Yeah. I mean, b- it wasn't because of you. We wouldn't have watched it. Mm. You know. So. Yeah, I'm. I'm great. I'm glad that we found it, lah. Yeah, yeah. Sure. it's hard to say that it's. I can blame it on stars because American Gods is a hit, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I guess it had an IP behind it, like and Counterpart didn't. And Counterpart yeah. like the Americans. If, yeah. Like I mean, the Americans even with its Emmy nominations and stuff like that. It was still a small audience. I think it still has the same audience as Counterpart. <laughs> I might, <laughs> might even venture to say it's the same audience as Counterpart. I mean, I was just yeah. looking through reviews and all that stuff, right? Yeah. It's. I mean, like YouTube reviews, for example. Yeah, it's very, sh- it's very uh, minorly covered. Yeah, the number. I mean, there are people who cover it, but the numbers who watched it are really tiny, like mm. thousands only. Hundreds of, of like, thousands, yeah. Yeah, not the millions that you know watch uh, other big hits like Westworld, you know, mm. and uh, the HBO things, lah. Yeah. Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think this season's highlight has to be episode six, which is entitled Ooh. "Twin Cities." Yeah. Um, it's the only episode of the show that breaks format to show us the experiment that split these two worlds. Yep. Mm. Um, and uncovered the identities of management in the process. Um, <laughs> it was um, I think a beautiful and emotional episode that took us back to the very first change the scientist in charge, uh, Yannick, yeah, made. Yes. Yeah. Um, whether or not to give his daughter a present, which is yeah, a cassette yeah. tape. Uh, and the ripple effect spiraled from there. Yeah. 
uh, almost you know like what you said lah, butterfly effect lah. Um, I won't spoil it, but the tragedy that occurs breeds distrust and competition, mainly because our animal instincts are engineered that way. Mm-hmm. It's very human. Um, it's base human nature lah. Uh, counterpart has always traded in Cold War analogies, right? I mean, it's shot like a Cold War show. Yeah, uh, and Yannick's story is set in East Berlin in 1987, uh, which you know furthers that analogy even yeah. more. Uh, except this time it's a quantum metaphor. Um, the lesson is that people on the other side, whatever other side that is, are exactly like us. Uh, but it's our nature to embrace differences and take sides, regardless of how similar both sides are. You know, because this other side is literally the same as you, and you still take sides. And it's played all the way to the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in 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 conclusion, what do you guys uh, think about season two? And you know, um, what are your hopes for season three if there are any? Uh, okay, quick one. Yeah, I I just felt season the last few episodes were slightly rushed. Yeah, yeah. You feel like it was it a was bit messy. It was right? messy. I did feel. Yeah, like yeah. yeah. So that was the only. I mean, still coherent storyline. Still, still do. I mean, still good. Mm-hmm. Just, it just felt a bit rushed. Like it was, it was, it was like ramping up to the ending, lah. Mm-hmm. Which you knew that was coming in episode ten. Yeah. Um, for season three, I would really hope to to see the consequences of the damn flu, lah. Mm-hmm. I mean, sorry, spoiler. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I mean, uh, that that's definitely the one lingering cliffhanger. That's we all, have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how would you rate this uh, season two? <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. Um, I'll give it a solid seven and a half too. Okay. No. How about you, Isa? I'm gonna give it an eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, just <coughs> generally because I, 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 you know, you get a sense of like impending doom both within the story and the fact that you know that it hasn't been renewed, right? Yep. Uh, that kind of like uh, put me in a weird headspace when I was watching it. Uh, and as well, like uh, all the. Oh man, when when things started to feel rushed, I really didn't quite enjoy it as much there wasn't enough kind of like time and all space within within the way that they shot it or the way that they were treating um the outcomes um to kind of look at the small things and the small details mm-hmm. right which is something that i've enjoyed thoroughly about this program mm-hmm. uh i really hope that in season three um they continue with with what they've done in terms of like uh how the characters that they've introduced and have grown mm-hmm. and who may or may not survive uh, you know, I hope I hope to see a lot more of them. Like I really enjoyed Emily Alpha's uh, arc. Mm. I really enjoyed Howard Alpha's arc in Prime. Mm. Well, uh, those two were standouts for me, mm-hmm. and uh, all the all the side characters had really really good stories as well. And I, I want to see a lot more of that. Yeah. Uh, w- even with the fallout that has happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the last three episodes in particular, it, it felt like they learned they they were cancelled. Yeah. Uh, and they were in a rush to wrap up maybe uh season three in the last three episodes. Yeah, yeah. It could have been. Like, yeah. it did feel that way, and I hope that if they do get picked up again, that isn't something that that forces them down a path that they don't want to be. You know? mm, correct. Yeah. Um. Hopefully, if they do get picked up, then they will know like, oh, we pick you up for two seasons or three seasons, so we they they know how to pace out their show, lah. Yeah. Rather than you know learning that oh, this might be the last three episodes we ever air, so let's try to you know wrap up and give as much closure as possible while still giving you one little nugget of a cliffhanger in case there is a new season, lah. Mm. Uh. In any case, I still think this was a wonderful season. I thought it was eight out of ten. Uh. With the highlight being obviously episode six, which yep. is Twin Cities. Um. Next up, we have a new show. <laughs> uh, on Netflix this time It is um, An adaptation of uh, Comic book 
a comic book, uh, Gerard Weiss and Gabriel Barr's Eisner Award-winning comic, The Umbrella Academy, uh, has been adapted into a live-action Netflix series. And for those of us who read the series, we were incredibly excited. Um, the Umbrella Academy is a fairly unique superhero theme story with enough weirdness and eccentricity to stand out from the pack. Um, unfortunately, I feel like this live-action series fulfills very little of its source material's mm. promise. Agreed. Um, its attempts to capture the visual and narrative virtuosity of the comics, it feels half-hearted, and it all looks and feels like a try-hard Noah Hawley cover act. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, its writing veers a little between unnecessarily vague and childishly ham-fisted. Uh, in the end, it's the same old found family overcoming childhood dysfunction, uh, try to save the world that I've seen you know a million times before. Um, it wasn't a special thing that I was promised. I was incredibly disappointed and very bored. Um, in fact, I actually gave up after episode five, so I have not seen the full shit what? series. Okay, okay. Um, no, this, we got it. Yeah, this is this is tedious in the way that a lot of Marvel Netflix is tedious. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, go ahead, guys. <laughs> okay, Umbrella Academy. Yeah. I had the pleasure of not reading the source material. Oh, okay. okay. So I came might, might play better for you. Yeah, so it was fresh eyes lah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what happened was that when I watched it, I was like, okay, this is serviceable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you had you had a cast like um, it was a good cast. Yeah, I mean, you had Dickon from Game of Thrones. Yeah. yeah. As the monkey boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, sorry, space boy. Dickon. Well, Dickon. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had um, Alan Page. Alan Page, the biggest star of yeah. all. Alan yeah. Page, you know, and a bunch of others. The thing was. Um, it was a really interesting family dynamic because they all are adopted children. Mm-hmm. Uh, how they interacted with one another. Mm-hmm. So you start off as them as adults with flashbacks of them in the past, right? And the the whole thing is piecing together the 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 pieces from how they they were how they were so united, and what caused them to fracture. Yeah, you know that sort of thing, like, And that slowly discovered as the series went by. I think you're right where you you said that it was a bit ham fisted. Mm. A lot of the tropes a lot of it felt very trope tropey. Mm. I don't think that's a word. Yeah, it yeah. can be lah. But you know what I mean lah. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like I've seen this before. Mm-hmm. Uh I've there's nothing special to it. And especially when you think about Legion season one. Mm. When you think <laughs> about um Legends of Tomorrow. Legends of Tomorrow. The ultimate weird show. Exactly. Yeah. And the the recently uh, Doom Patrol. Doom Patrol. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you look at all those shows and then you take a look at this one. Yeah. Then you I mean when I watched it just w- without thinking of those other shows, it was serviceable yeah. at best. Yeah. But then when you're comparing it to Marvel Netflix. Correct. Right? Because you're watching Netflix, it on Netflix, Netflix yeah, and exactly. you're like, oh no, I look cage like this. So okay, la, this you this know? makes sense. Yeah. But then when I thought about it later, when Hidzi was the one that raised it to me and then I went on went went on to like, oh yeah, when I watched Doom Patrol, right? And then I was like, Is this all they they could they could have done with exactly. this source material? Exactly. With these resources available to them. Yeah. The characters know? were already so weird, you know. Correct. You could have done more. You, know? yeah. you had that um that uh you had that drug addicted um Klaus. Klaus, who who uh, sexually ambiguous, I mean he's gay lah. Sees dead people. Sees dead people. Yeah. Hasn't unlocked his potential. You know, it, so many things you could have done with that. Um, the girl with the voice. See, I can't even remember their names. Alison. Alison, yeah. You know, we've heard the whole. A rumor. A rumor. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, Umbrella Academy. In the end of it all, it just felt boring. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, what about you, Isa? Did you think it was boring as well? Oh my goodness, it was actually painful to get to get through. Uh, I'm yeah. surprised that I made it to the end. 
Yeah. Uh, I think like especially um, episodes three all the way up to episode like six, seven, eight. Standard Netflix. Yeah, it, it really, really got very, very drawn out, and I just felt like, um, source material aside, they did so little with the characters across so much time, right? And um, why couldn't they just lean into it? Yeah. You know, the acting was serviceable. Uh, honestly, not one of Ellen Page's best roles, right? And at the end not of the day, not really given much to do until the last two episodes. I hear. Yeah, and yeah. that was okay, right? It served as a decent climax You know It wasn't I mean, Once all the reviews happen la. Yeah But but even then right That in and of itself Was not enough It mm. is Fantastical Near the end And it does Reach Close to The kind of visual Elasticity That you get In the, com- uh, in the comic itself mm. uh, But it's not enough It was mm. too little Too late And I'm just wondering Why they were twiddling Their thumbs f- For much of the season um, Not a fan Honestly, I, I, not I, I do agree. I feel like the real problem was that Netflix itself and the showrunner tried to ground the weirdness uh, and it grounded it to a drag. Um, now, Gerard, Gerard Weir right, has said across multiple interviews and multiple times that the primary source of inspiration for the Umbrella Academy was Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol run. Um, in fact, Gerard Wood actually wrote the latest Doom Patrol arc in uh, in DC Comics. Yeah. Um, anyone who's ever read both Doom Patrol and uh, Umbrella Academy can see the many, many similar- similarities. Yeah, for sure. And I, I bristle at the many reviews that call Doom Patrol um, DC's um, X-Men, yeah. uh, considering Doom Patrol came first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, um, do your research. It's, Wikipedia is like a click away, guys. <laughs> um, coincidentally, Doom Patrol actually premiered on the same day as Umbrella Academy on two different streaming ser- services, so more similarities there. Um, unlike Umbre- Umbrella Academy, though, Doom Patrol embraces its eccentricity to tell something more bizarrely inventive. Uh, we'll be covering Doom Patrol in a couple of episodes once this season wraps up. Um, so I urge you to watch Doom Patrol instead of Umbrella Academy. Um, yep. I think, in conclusion, I will give this a 4 out of 10. Half a season. Uh. Half a season. Uh. Okay, I'll give it a... It's serviceable, so I'll give it a 5. Okay. Yeah. Nah, I'm going to give it a 4. Okay. It didn't pass for me. It was really very painful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I had the benefit of not reading the source material. Yeah. yeah. But even something like a 5 out of 10, I don't think it's worth... 10 to 12 hours Oh no 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 no, yeah. no 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 You can skip this Yeah definitely And I, I won't be watching And two. I mean the content On Netflix You have so many Legends of Tomorrow Just to watch Legends of Tomorrow Which is also on Netflix actually Exactly yeah. So if you've got Nothing better to watch Watch Legends of Tomorrow I know There are a ton of Weird DC shows out right now And Doom Patrol And Legends of Tomorrow Are just you know um, Leaning into it lah. Uh, So that's great uh, Okay That is the first half Of our show Next up We have a very special Interview with the director and cast of a beautifully crafted Filipino convent horror movie called Eerie. Um, here I speak to uh, filmmaker Mikhail Red alongside his principal actors Bia Alonso, Charo Santos Concillo, and Jake Cuenca for a wide ranging interview about the technical craft of horror filmmaking and the social subtext of Eerie with regards to how mental illness, religion, and capital punishment is regarded in the Philippines. Uh, and of course, much more. Um, this was a roundtable interview conducted just before the movie's uh, world premiere at the Singapore International Film Festival last month. So you'll be hearing other voices outside of myself in this one. Lah. But I think, you know, I have the best questions. Uh, as usual. As usual. Uh, anyways, um, enjoy and we'll catch you on the flip side. The 
genre of convent school horror is, is fairly popular, I guess, and this being your first uh, horror movie, um, and judging by your previous work, are you, it seems to me that Eerie might look to maybe subvert some tropes or even um, maybe kind of layer it with social commentary. Um, what were the themes that you wanted to hit on with your first horror movie? That's exactly what we, uh, you know, I always try to do. That's my philosophy as a filmmaker. I mentioned earlier in the, the talk that, uh, you know, genre for me is a vehicle to reach a wider audience. But as a filmmaker, you always have something important to say. And sometimes it's not that easy to say it. So you need a Trojan horse, like, genre. And for me, horror is one of the uh, most uh, you know, accessible, especially for a Philippine local audience. So we did, uh, and also at the same time, uh, I like to challenge myself. So in every project I do, I try a new um, approach, a new genre, a new kind of treatment. And if you notice, Birdshot had some horror elements in it. So this time I wanted to go full on horror and I've stockpiled you know, a lot of influences and ideas. And I always use a very familiar uh, premise to sort of set it up and make it easy for the audience to relate. But you're right, uh, the goal is to subvert it. So they think they're seeing something, but they're only seeing the surface layer, which is you know, to entertain them. But as they go deeper, you reach the second act, the third act, you reach the deeper layers, you're actually there to engage them, not just entertain them. Uh, one of the subjects that we touch on is uh, mental health awareness, which is very lacking in the Philippines. We're a very conservative uh, majority, is Catholic country, I see. and a lot of you know elements in the script actually based on personal experience. Me, the writer, some of the cast, all grew up in these very uh, traditional um, Catholic schools that don't really have that full understanding of. Uh, these repressed kids and their mental health, mm -hmm. and that's why that's where uh, Bea's character comes in, she, where she's in in a way conflicted because she she does psychotherapy, but at the same time she has a third eye yeah. and is sensitive to the supernatural. So that's her conflict. Like, what do you really believe in? Interesting. I do want to that question. So, what do you think the Singapore audience can take away from your film? Um, Especially since when you compare it to a Filipino culture, it's a different culture, so, yeah. Well, I feel like uh, we deliberately made sure that it's, it's an international co-production. We have Singaporean partners. In fact, when we were pitching this, our intention was to find financing internationally, and it was just a chance encounter with Star Cinema. We were pitching this at the Buchon International Film Festival, which is a big genre platform. We met them and they greenlit the project. Then we pitched it here last year at SAF. We got Singaporean partners. So the idea was to make a film that, again, would subvert, you know, horror tropes would do well locally, but has legs internationally. So there's this uh, deliberate design to it to make it universally appealing. So I would say that, you know, a Singaporean audience We'll appreciate it. I hope so. We'll see later at the premiere. But we want it to cross borders. We want it to feel like a, almost like a revival of classic Asian horror. It's not just Filipino horror. And even the way uh, the way we designed it, the elements in the frame, the, the production design, the casting, the pan-Asian look of the cast, 
we wanted to feel like an, an Asian horror film, not just a Filipino horror film. Can I just ask, um, so it's sort of like a follow-up for all these questions. What is your, what is the process like at which you arrive at the, the first start of the idea of making, like not just um, theory, but also like previous films, like for short. Like because you mentioned you drew inspiration from a lot of different, like um, from news, current happenings in the Philippines and also from, I don't know, other areas in your life. So how is it that everything comes together for you? It's really um, a fusion, you know. Uh, I said earlier that there's no original idea anymore and it's the way you tell a story that makes it original and for me it's all about combining things. It's almost like cooking, you know, you have different ingredients. Sometimes you would combine influences from Western cinema but you set it in a Filipino environment and you tackle a very current issue, it becomes a whole new film. And for me, it's a combination of things. Sometimes you know, when I, I, I think of a scene or I think of a, I'm disturbed by a certain new story and then I shelve it, I keep it in my head. And then one day, sometimes you're in the shower, it all just snaps and clicks together, several elements, and then you have a story. But sometimes you realize it's not enough, it's just a premise, then you need time to develop it. So at any given moment, there's actually like, you know, a bunch of ideas rolling around and then sometimes they all just snap together and you have a complete film. So if you notice, like every uh, feature that I did is based on an actual uh, news event, but uh, it's still fiction. Uh, we, you know, we make sure that it's, it has commercial viability at least, it, it can travel, but at the same time, you know, the challenge is to make a film that gets into genre festivals, that gets into uh, competitive art house festivals, but can still uh, do well locally, because that at the end of the day, you want to reach out to a local audience if you want social change, because what's the point of your social commentary if you're preaching to the choir, you know, you, to, to swing the vote, need to reach the majority uh, back home. So I think a lot of you ask some questions, uh, perhaps I want to ask some questions to Charo, Ia and Jake as well. Um, like for, for instance, what drew you to these roles and what inspiration do you take? Like Kel, you spoke a lot about like, your inspiration for the film, but for the rest of you who were acting in it, like how did you how did you get into the roles and how did you prepare for the roles maybe? Well, you know, I, I grew up in a Catholic school also. I studied in a Catholic school. So I totally understand where the character is coming from. I, I know the, about these urban legends in a Catholic school. So that actually sparked my interest when I accepted the project. Yeah. Um, me, like I said earlier, I think the, 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 the most challenging part for the film was really, for me and my character, was the end. So it was more of like just creating this really dark head space and isolating myself. And I knew that when I read the script, I knew I had to do that. And again, like I said, it was what, what really, um, why I accepted the film, because I saw an opportunity to really practice the method. There's a way to immerse myself and really just, you know, like have an out-of-body experience mm -hmm. with the character. So for me, it was the, opportun the opportunity was, was, was right there, so I took it. I like the story, I like the role. <laughs> This, my question is actually a follow-up on Gabriel's as well. What, this is directed to the cast. What was the hardest part 
that you had to, what was the hardest thing that you had to go through to get into character and what was the easiest? Without spoiling anything. Without spoiling anything. <laughs> For me the hardest was working with Miss Charisette. Yeah, working with you I have such a huge respect for her as an actress and I've always wanted to work with her, so I think that's the hardest. And um, I don't think there is an easy scene for me. I mean, like the whole the whole movie was hard for me because everything's so heavy somehow. For me it was um, <clears throat> to me the hardest part of the film Again, aside from working with your boss, <laughs> can't be late today, but <laughs> can't be late. No, but I think it was being very unapologetic at certain times. Mm. Certain times where I knew I, I was in the wrong, but I was very much in, in character that I just hoped for the best in the yeah. end. That no one was going to get mad, but then it was being, it was being, yeah, at certain points being unapologetic for certain things that happened in the scene. But why did yeah. you apologize to me after that? In character. <laughs> in character. <laughs> no, but once we finished, once we, like, they said it's done, pack up, then we can just totally be normal again. Wait, and very apologize intense. in the end. Yeah. They make it sound like working with a boss seems like a dream. It's a dream come true. Really? I'd love to do it again. Mother Superior. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> getting my confidence from my director and from my co-stars. Um, it, it's a collaborative effort. Filmmaking is a collaborative effort. And when, when you know that you're with a team, even the most difficult becomes uh, a go-with-the-flow kind of an experience. Um, on the flip side of casting, um, were these particular actors what you had in mind when you wrote the movie? Or was there actually a casting process? And if so, uh, what, what interested you in these particular act actors and actresses? Like I mentioned, when we first pitched it, we had no idea it was going to be produced by uh, you know, a major studio. Sure. But as soon as, uh, as, soon as uh, they greenlit the project, to be honest, they're all my first choice. Right. <laughs> and when we sat down with Damalu uh, <laughs> Santos, who's also the producer, you know, we had to brainstorm the cast and everyone that we pegged for in that meeting. Yeah, and at the same time, uh, that's what I guess working with the studio provides because my previous films are, you know, uh, financed with soft money from competitive grants. But with working with the studio, the advantage is, uh, well, it's much faster. You know, we got it script to screen in, in a year. We were pitching uh, in Singapore at this exact time. And then now it's premiering. Um, Birdshot took two years. So it takes more patience to make a film like that. The advantage with working in a studio is they have the resources. They have the roster of you know stars that help attract you know, local audience. Aside from being you know, dedicated and talented, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they have the machinery to actually promote it. And you know that people are actually going to watch your film. You know it's going to stay in theaters longer with more cinemas, more screens, more eyes, yeah. and more ears. At the same time, uh, it, it's something new even for the studio because they have international partners. Uh, Star Cinema, you know, they do a lot of films that focus on the local market, but this time they're um, exploring these kinds of hybrid films where they team up with an independent filmmaker with the hopes of uh, crossing borders as well, partnering up with uh, financiers from Singapore. So it's something new, and that's why we're all excited um, 
you know, we don't know what's gonna happen once we release it next year, but we're hoping for the best. And hopefully, if this works out, we can do more sort of films like this and slowly uh, build an audience back home, you know, uh, develop taste and elevate the genre. For some of you, it's your first time working with the horror genre. So what are like the differences between working with the horror genre versus the other types of genres that you've done? I mostly did love stories, mainstream love stories, so this is a totally different process for me, but I really enjoyed it. I think the difference is you have more control over your character. I mean, I grabbed my, at least my um, emotional continuity on the movie, so yeah, I enjoyed it. No, I, I've done horror films in the past, but for me, I think, well, well I just like what I said earlier, despite the the film being a horror film, it was such a happy set. You just laugh. I mean, it was heavy emotions that you're carrying around the whole day, but then really like when you know when they're setting up, you're all just laughing. It was such a fun process so to me. Like, and direct make runs such a tight ship. Like the, everything was so organized, it was so easy to work on this film. So for me, rather than maybe that was that's what made this experience very different as to the other films that I've done. This was so organized, this this tight show. And also we were locked in one um, location yeah. the entire 20 days, so it helped us get in touch with our real emotions as a character. I've gone full circle. My first movie was a horror. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. what is it like? It can be creepy. Happy, happy, happy haunted set. What's your memory of like when you compare it with your first movie and like right now? Oh, I didn't. I, I, I was very new. I was so what naive then. Thank God I was given the role of a provincial lass who didn't know much about life. Um, I, I think I know more about Minecraft. Yeah, uh, after. Um, being in the industry for um, two decades as an artist and also um, having gone also to the other side of the fence which is producing. So I, I think I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm much older so I have a better grasp or appreciation of you know, the dark side, the philosophies, the different philosophies of life and, and it just brings a lot more texture to your craft. Follow up on the question, so for Pia, uh, because you're new to the genre, right? So, how do you actually, and you mentioned that it's quite hard for you, mm -hmm. so how do you actually get into the role? Like, um, how was your practice like? How it was really Miku who helped me throughout the movie. I mean, I read the script, but each time I have a question, I would ask him and he would readily answer my questions. No, this is actually directed to Mikhail again, and I wanted to ask, because your films have been through the festival circuit, you were a festival circuit kid with throughout your previous filmographies, and now onto this one with, a, you know, with studio money and with a lot of international money inside and having been through BFAN, SAFF, were there any compromises that you had to do to your vision to get it to where it is today? Did the eerie in your mind look the same as the eerie that we're going to watch later? Or did you have to adapt, compromise, change? I wouldn't call it compromises. But uh, in every film that I make, there's always adjustments. You know, you never get 100% what's in your head. The film in your head is always going to be perfect. You know, it's the perfect 
cinematography, perfect location, you know, the perfect acting, the perfect lines. And then when you start to write it, it's like 80% left. And then you shoot it, it's like with more realistic factors coming in that you can't really predict. It's now 60%, you edit it, it's 40%. I think that the trick is, I always tell uh, other students in workshops, is you have to dream big. So by the time the film in your head, the perfect film in your head gets on the screen, it's still big enough. So in every film, even like, even with my more, you would label it maybe more art house films, we had to adjust, you know, because of budget, because of uh, logistics. Like we would go to a certain location; it wasn't what we expected. So there's always adjustment, and I think that's what makes a good director. When not just working outside of the box, but when you work <coughs> inside the box, when there are restrictions and limitations, that's where you. That's where your skill comes in as a director. It's when, I always say this example, that when the sun is setting and you have three shots to do, but you can only take one, it's that decision that defines you as a director. It's not what you show, but what you don't show, what you take out of it. So yes, I would admit that in every project, uh, even in a script, you know, you start with draft one and then you end up with several drafts. There's always gonna be change uh, film is very malleable, and I guess the trick is to be clear with your objective. Every project must have a precise objective. You know what you want to achieve with the film, so you can articulate it to the rest of your team, and so you're all on the same boat. Uh, without having that clear objective, if you don't really know what you're doing with this film, that's when it starts to become a mess. So as long as you're honest with yourself, and you know uh, the objective, uh, it's, you know, adjustments, it's part of the filmmaking process. Um, in general, over the last maybe five to ten years, um, the horror genre has had a huge renaissance daily. Um, from the art house stuff like Hereditary or The Witch or even mainstream stuff like The Conjuring or whatnot. Um, why do you think that is? Well, uh, first of all, it's a very technical genre. And yeah. it, I, I guess as a filmmaker, as a craftsman, mm -hmm. You really enjoy it. It's it's it has to be precise. It has to be deliberate. To create a scare, it's quite complex. It's almost like a magic trick. You're like an illusionist. You know, there's a there's a setup. There's a conceal information. You reveal it, and then there's a twist. Mm -hmm. And that alone is something very interesting, and that attracts a lot of filmmakers. Uh, you get to you know make a I guess a glossy film as well because horror it has a lot of these you know camera movements, these very tech, I mean, you, like Haunting of uh, Hill House, oh. episode six, you know. It's something that really uh, attracts a lot of filmmakers that are into the craft. Right. And at the same time, it gives you uh, a platform, an opportunity or a vehicle to, you know, to smuggle in your, your social subtext. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's the type of genre that can really contain all those layers and not feel forced. So it, it, it's the perfect vehicle and it makes money, yeah. so it's sustainable. So it's, it's a logical choice for a lot of artists and filmmakers who want to express something but at the same time create something more sustainable and something that's actually feasible for people to finance. Right. So that, I guess that's why. And, and audience uh, appreciate horror and it's very universal so it crosses mm -hmm. borders. You know, a scare is scary no matter where you show it because it's very visual. So it's, it's the perfect genre to sort of be in the middle of it, to be a hybrid film. That makes sense.
So, Mikhail, can I ask you um, who are some of the, who are, which films um, were you inspired by in terms of horror? Well, uh, I, I mentioned earlier in the talk that, you know, if it's your first time doing a genre and you're a filmmaker, you're a film enthusiast, you're a movie buff, what happens is uh, you have a lot of ideas stockpiled and it, because it's your first time in that genre, you, you got to sort everything out, you know, which to use, which not to use, which one you should change, you know, to make it more original and then fuse everything but put it in a local milieu, a local setting that you're actually familiar with and you create something new. Uh, a lot of my influences are, of course, the class on Kubrick, but I also like a lot of modern Asian horror. Of course, uh, it's a very, uh, might be a cliche answer, but I really like a Ring. It has this certain structure uh, without, you know, having too much um, jump scare, relying on jump scares. It has this mystery that sustains you, and it has this structure where there's a deadline, so there's constant <coughs> impending doom, and it keeps the audience engaged. And yeah, that's one of my favorite horror films. And also a lot of the A24 films. I mean, I'm sure every filmmaker references you know, the A24 films. So uh, do you plan to dabble in any other genres? Because most of your films right now are of like the thriller, horror genres. So. I'm doing a, a zombie movie with Star Cinema. I'm doing um, a youth kidnap film, a kidnapping film in a school. Uh, and then I'm doing an international series with uh, fantasy action elements, but we can't, I can't disclose that. Okay. <laughs> uh, with all the projects that you just listed, uh, what is like really, really next for you? Or are you doing them all concurrently? I guess the one that we'll, we might finish first is the, the high school kidnappings. Are you aware of when um, Eerie will be getting a wide release in Singapore in particular? So, so we're still trying to decide, we're waiting on a few more uh, factors, but it's definitely first quarter of 2019. Okay. So that was our interview with the cast and director of Eerie. Um, I had a blast talking with them and I came away very impressed with Mikhail Red in particular for someone so young to be so talented and so thoughtful. Uh, he's certainly becoming one of my favorite Southeast Asian genre filmmakers alongside the likes of Joko Anwar from Indonesia, for example. Uh, if you missed the screening of Eerie at uh, SGIFF, uh, fear not because the film will soon be released in Singapore and the Philippines later this month. Uh, it'll be released on the Philippines on March 27th. It'll be released in Singapore on March 28th. So in the coming weeks, uh, please check it out. I thought this was a really, really good film and a solid recommendation for me. Uh, it's a 7.5 out of 10. Nice. Uh, next up, we'll be covering um, a couple of uh, animated sequels. Uh, firstly is the final chapter to DreamWorks Animation's, in my opinion, best franchise, How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, this third installment called The Hidden World uh, is, I think, visually marvellous mm -hmm. uh, and emotionally poignant, and I greatly enjoyed it. Um, it's Dean de Blois's, um final run with the story, and I think he has run out of story. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he basically repeated the same story. From from How to Train Your Dragon too, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it, it recycles that plot for sure. Um, that's why I'm glad that it's ending while it's still soaring before yeah. it repeats yeah. even more. Ooh, soaring. Yeah. yeah. Uh. Uh, but yeah, How to Train Your Dragon: The Hidden World is is poignant, but I think it works better as a third chapter than as a movie. Right. Like okay. as an individual yeah, yeah, yeah. movie, I might not have rated it this much if I had not seen the last yeah, couple. Okay. But I think it was a nice wrap up to um a long running storyline. Yeah, uh, what do you sure. guys think of How to Train Your Dragon? Mm. Okay, I mean he really said visually stunning, right? Yeah. 
because if you watch the the past two movies and you see the growth of Hiccup and the gang mm. and his dragons and their dragons, I mean, yeah. okay lah, it's a sweet story lah. You know it. Um, this is based on the book, right? Yes. Yeah, I don't know. I I didn't read Never the source material. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a kid's book if I'm not wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but <sighs> I think DreamWorks has. I mean, they really milked it lah mm. with three movies. <laughs> like like they milked the other franchise track. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was even worse. Yeah, you know this one three movies. I I I think this is the last. There's no more, right? It should be the end. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I actually enjoyed. Uh, this story Even though it's similar To the previous story mm. I preferred this story In terms of like The villain mm. He was a bit smarter mm-hmm. uh, You know With his um, Scorpion dragons Yeah, yeah. With the acid Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is good there. Yeah I mean I don't really know The law Of how to train a dragon Except they're dragons lah. Mm-hmm. And the whole love story Between uh, um, um, Toothless Yeah And the white Bright Fury Bright Fury Yeah That was quite a sweet lah. Yeah, you know, and how he tries to court her. It's for the kids to go oh, all. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know. Um, but overall, I think I miss um Gerard Butler's <laughs> uh, portrayal of uh, Hiccup's father. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. who only I think had like two or three lines lah. Flashbacks. Flashbacks lah. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's about it. Yeah, might I not even have been new lines actually. It might might be recycled lines. Yeah, yeah. I'm not too sure. Um, didn't see much of his mum. Mm. I mean, there were parts of you know where she was there, mm. but it felt like there was no. Um, but I think the mom's arc was finished already. Yeah, I guess so, part la, two, yeah. You know, um, yeah. But overall, everybody kind of there was no not much character growth left. Yeah, you know, Hiccup was already grown up. Mm-hmm. He already went through his trials. Yeah. This movie was okay. It was fun to watch. Yep. It was. It was definitely a good like what you say a good closer, good tie up to this series. Mm. And I don't want to see another one. No, me neither. Yeah. What, what, what about you, Aisa? Uh, I mean, I echo the same sentiment, right? Uh, as a third installment, definitely uh, a lot of a lot of feels, right? We've mm. already invested like three movies worth uh, of time following these characters. Um, not much of a growth arc for any of them. I mean, the coming of age story for for all of them came in the second movie itself. Mm. You know, uh, the visual appeal. Of um, what they're doing this time around, definitely they've upped the ante a bit. I think they kind of knew as well that they couldn't really bring anything else to the story, except for better technology, lah, which yeah. exists now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, like just some of the flying scenes and things like that, and just the the landscape and all uh, that. Landscape, it's, correct, it's, correct, it's correct. Gorgeous, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think those moments were good enough just for me to kind of forget the fact that they were just giving me the same story all over again. Um, but as a standalone movie, I I wouldn't even. Watch this as a standalone movie, mm. you know. If it wasn't for the fact that it was a sequel, I think anyone who hasn't watched the first two movies and came into this would be very lost mm. and very disappointed mm. because um the r- a lot of implied history. La. Yeah, a lot of implied history is one thing. Uh, yeah. but in addition to that, like it doesn't fit well. Mm. Rehashing the second story with a slightly different twist and a new villain doesn't necessarily gel mm. towards the final mm. p- portion, right? Into Act Three, and uh, I think like. After I was done with like, oh, you know, that was a great story over three movies. Uh, it kind of sank in that okay, you know, it was a good movie. It wasn't yeah. great, yeah. Uh, but overall, great franchise. Cool. I feel. Yeah. Um, I would rate it um six point five out of ten. Same six point five. Yeah. Same yeah. here. 
uh, I think it's a recommendation for sure. Uh, just yeah, not, yeah. not great lah, and it doesn't quite soar to the heights of the first. If movie. you didn't watch the first two, don't need to watch this one. Yeah. I, w- I would actually just recommend going on Netflix to watch the first one. Oh yeah, which is on Netflix. Yeah, yeah which is an uh, amazing. Um, I guess. Dream probably I think the best DreamWorks movie ever besides Shrek lah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first Shrek before mm-hmm. that was also Milk to Death. <laughs> uh, next up we have another sequel. Uh, this this one is the Lego Movie Two subtitled the second part. Um, okay, so I do have to talk about the Lego Movie first, right? Because okay. when it came out, it was such a surprise. Yeah. People thought it was going to be like you know the emoji movie that type of rubbish, right? But it turned out to be you know very audacious, very insanely creative, or like. Absolutely hilarious lah! Everything about it was awesome, which kind of shocked everyone when it came out, right? Um, who knew that such a silly concept could be executed so geniusly? Uh, but now that the concept has played out across four different movies, including Batman, uh, the Lego Batman movie, and the Lego Ninjago movie, the novelty has worn off a little, mm-hmm. and the franchise also has that impossibly high bar to live up to. Uh, that being said, Lego Movie Two is still good. And very 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 funny, uh, filled with like you know clever jokes, the usual meta shrewdness, and a heartwarming lesson about you know selfish boys and their toys lah. Um, the best of Phil Lord and Chris Miller's script continues to be their comic book meta jokes, which yep. I think is something they've specialized in. <laughs> um, the Queen's reverse psychology and Batman, for example, such a great bit. Uh, as was their duet song, which was the best song this particular time. Uh, you can tell that Lord and Miller are huge comic book geeks given their work on the Lego Batman movie and Into the Spider-Verse, which, you know, recently won the Oscar. Uh, so they always nail it when it comes to crafting fantastic comic book or superhero jokes. Uh, that being said, I feel like as a whole, this movie underwhelms a bit because the initial spark of ingenuity from the first film has been recycled too many times now. Yeah, okay. uh, what do you guys think about the Lego movie too? I mean, okay. F- I was, I mean... <clears throat> sorry. Okay, because Batman... Was a standalone uh, story. Yeah, Lego Batman. Yeah, and Ninjago also was a standalone story. Mm-hmm. Yes, we don't have the the same kind of like uh, universe implications that Lego Movie One and Two had. Had yeah. yeah. This right? is a direct sequel to yeah, Lego yeah, Movie yeah. One. Yeah. So you had that whole overarching the sister growing up, you know, playing in the third. That's why there's the whole the father not caring about them, mm. um, messing up the the the, the town anymore, yeah. yeah. So that's why it's like uh, an apocalypse. I mean, that was the scenario that was given, mm-hmm. that the boy was trying to do. And the sister's invasion, you know, with the Duplo toys, and then, <laughs> and what I really liked was how as she grew up, yeah, like the toys became more complex, yeah. right? The the ideas that she was bringing in were becoming more complex, more complex than her brothers actually. In a way, lah, you know, with the whole idea of like equality and love and all that stuff, interesting, lah. Mm-hmm. But um, I like the whole duality between uh, danger, f- what's his name? Oh, who's that? Uh. Emmett's uh, doppelganger. Oh, the other Chris Pratt. The other Chris Pratt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was hilarious because all the things that he did, right? He was like a archaeologist. Uh, yeah, he was yeah. like a raptor <laughs> trainer. Yeah. It was like all the Chris Pratt roles, right? For yeah. like a Parks and Rec, Chris Pratt versus correct. Uh, Chris Pratt after. Yeah, but uh, then it was like, yeah, correct, correct. Post Guardians, Chris Post Pratt. Guardian, yeah. yeah. It was interesting. La. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, that dynamic was cool. Also meta, yeah, very cool. Exactly. Yeah. And then. Um, Really nice visuals. They continue the tradition of really making Lego pop on screen. Yes. Yeah, I felt like buying Legos. Right? The, yeah, exactly. After the movie, that's what yeah. I said to you all, right? Yeah. I really yeah. want to buy Legos. Like, <laughs> oh, this really work. Yeah. yeah. Lucky I had not enough money to buy Legos at the time. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, it, the premise was fine. The overarching story was great. Um, I feel that I'm less um, severe on it than you are. Um, I... I I feel that it is not yet really overused. 
Because I feel that the Ninjago and Batman movies were kind of very different mm. than the Lego movie one. Mm-hmm. Same graphics and all that, but like Same how jokes also. Ish lah, ish. Yeah. I feel. I I still could tell that I mean I could still I I don't know I feel that it was different enough yeah that it didn't really affect how I watch Lego Movie Two alright yeah that's why la. cool that I think that's why I'm more favorable towards it what about you Isa uh I I feel that especially for the first half of the movie right it was largely just a sequence of jokes. Right, and the whole idea of inserting that into a kind of world building was problematic for me. Like, sure, you gave me a bit of world building, this whole like post-apocalyptic thing, a mix of Mad Max meets, uh, you know, gritty ass Batman in in BVS, right? Uh, and you got all of that, but it was it was solely carried by a sequence of jokes. Yeah. Right, and I think that took way too long. Mm. Right, it took them two acts. To kind of get to the Lego movie that I wanted to see, oh, okay, okay. or at least the emotional core of the story. Like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I that that to me was extremely prob- problematic. Like the jokes are great, mm-hmm. the relief is great. Uh, I feel like um, uh, Phil and Miller have done a great job uh, with all of that, but it just didn't have the kind of compactness that I wanted mm-hmm. uh, that we saw in the first movie, or even in Lego Batman, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, just generally, it reached points where things got a little annoying for me. Um, but all in all, with enough laughs, you can. I was. Be- I became a bit more forgiving of it. Yeah. You know. But uh, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was a. It was a good sequel. Uh, but uh, nothing remotely close to the first Lego movie. Yeah, um, I thought you're, you're right. The structurally, the main narrative thrust doesn't kick in until the, the midway points, at least. Uh, so the first half felt rudderless. Mm. Uh, but it was carried through, you know, many funny side gags, many funny jokes, a lot of clever references, yeah. uh, which tickled my geek brain, lah. Uh, and I thought, like, when it did come to the third act, it wrapped up the emotional crux of the story very well, very, uh, very poignantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that saved this movie for me, lah. Uh, f- so I would rate it a seven out of ten. I mean, one more thing is how Lego actually like just brandishes all their IP at one time. Yeah, la. it's just flexing. Yeah. They just yeah, flex like, yeah, all yeah, the time. Look at all these movies. You can't do this. And then you have Gandalf here. <laughs> you, have, you have the basketball players. You have the Ninja Turtles and etc. etc. So I will give this a... I mean, apart from the product placement, which is very obvious, which is very... Um, also very well. They yeah. all know. They, yeah. they, all, they all lean into it. Um, I'll give this a 7.5. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give this a 6.5. Interesting. Okay, 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 no, no, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I give it a seven. She's in the middle of both yeah, of you guys, yeah, yeah. so Correct. we have about similar takes. On it this averages movie, out, la. Yeah, I do have to say though that uh, Marvel took out their properties from this one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, they didn't have the full flex. They didn't have the full it's, flex. It's some of it, lah. Uh, next up, we'll be talking about a surprisingly successful manga adaptation called Alita Battle Angel. This is Robert Rodriguez's, easy for me to say, Robert Rodriguez, uh, his latest film. Um, and it's based on, obviously, um, Battle, Battle Angel Alita. Is that what the man- yeah. manga is yeah. called? Yeah. Same, uh, I, I think it's the same title. Gun, actually. Oh, it's not it's the same called title. Gun. Yeah. Okay. G-U-N-N-M. But yeah, I mean, like, essentially, um, it's popularly known as Battle Angel. 
Okay, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think back when I was uh, in my secondary school or poly days, that's when the manga first came out. Yep. And I think it got really huge then. I mean, I was familiar with her character design, the big eyes and everything. Mm-hmm. Although I was not, I didn't read the manga, so I wasn't familiar with the story. And um, I think it's safe to say that this is uh, Robert Rodriguez's best movie since Sin City. Oh, for sure. Uh, because, yep. um, you know, it's not that high of a bar, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Alita is absolutely entertaining. It really is. It's so fun. Yep. Um, and and it feels on like basic things, things that I usually harp on, like storytelling and dialogue and character development and plotting. But you know, fuck all that, lah. It's fucking fun, sir. I mean, the action sequences are so phenomenal. Yeah. Um, it's badass. It's kickass. It's fluid and it's inventive. And most importantly, what I want from an action-driven movie, because this is not a story-driven movie or nope. character-driven movie. Nope. This is an action-driven movie. And what I want from this is coherent action sequences. Coherent. You can follow the action. You can go wow at specific. You know, it's not like the Michael Bay. Uh, Bro, bro shake step, camera. shaky cam, you know, metal everywhere kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's all I really want from these kind, this kind of like dumb, big, silly blockbusters. Like, I want that kind of action, and if you can deliver that kind of action, I'm gonna love it, because that is what you're going for. You know, this isn't, uh, this isn't uh, moonlight. You know, whatever. <laughs> you know, this is, <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not going for that kind of artistic thing, lah. Like. This is more towards like bad boys. Uh, so I I mean I love bad boys. <laughs> yeah, we meet them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have the whole thing. Yeah, yeah we have this whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, and especially because I was unfamiliar with the anime and manga, I was very engaged with the world building. I was taken in by its uh cyberpunk retrofuturistic setting. I like learning about Alita's backstory. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. I like learning about motorball as a sport, uh, which is just basically Tron meets roller derby. Yeah. Um. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, and I guess for the record, like uh, Alita's huge eyes, the controversy about that is for knots because I thought they weren't distracting at all mm-hmm. in context. Yep. Uh, it actually feels natural in motion. Uh, we avoided the uncanny valley, and I think a large part of that is down to Rosa Salazar's outstanding mocap work because I thought that she emoted very well. Yep. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I surprisingly love this movie. Uh, what about you guys? Oh, well, okay, definitely. This is one of the better movies out there yeah, during that period of time. Huh? Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. But damn it, the graphics, right? Yeah. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you always say the mocap capture and all that stuff. Yeah. But almost everything, like even uh, the side villains, mm. like um the guy the sword. Oh, uh, Dario, the original Dario. Dario, yes. <laughs> yeah. Dario Naharis yeah. in Battle Armor. Yeah. Um, Only yeah. in one episode of Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, couple, 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 couple. Yeah, couple. Yeah, anyway. Original Dario was great. You know, he had that very sleazy. Ed Scrine, uh, Ed Scrine, yes, who was also Ajax in Deadpool. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yes, okay. correct. correct. Anyway, uh, he was great uh, with that very sleazy, very cocky, you know, um, toxic masculine kind of Honestly, villain. He had one of the best, like, acting. <laughs> But Alita's movement was mm. so perfect, right? Was graceful. You had the full cin- you had the full cinematic um fight scenes. Yeah, you know where you're right. There's no shaky cam, no rob, uh, no bullshit um taken kind of cutscene time thing. More like the raid or John Wick. Exactly, you but know? with more CGI. Of we, course, we, of course, of course. Yeah. But when the CGI is done so well, mm-hmm. right? It's great. I mean. That girl, the the uh, one of the villains uh, with that the, the, scythe. the scythe hands yeah. thing, yeah, right. That fight scene was great, yeah. Right when was. Alita was discovering that she can fight, yeah, you know, um, the world building was awesome. Mm-hmm. Story was just balls to the walls action, yeah, right. And it wasn't too, it was not overly um, grat- 
do it this Sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was just nice. Just everything was. It was still, it still felt purposeful. Right? Yeah, you yeah. know, like uh, it was a beautifully made movie, lah. Mm-hmm. You're right. Not much on the plot. Not don't care about the loop, the loopholes and all that stuff. Never mind. Don't care. But when the manga creator loved this movie, where he watched it like multiple times, so because, rare, right? Yeah. Right? Where he said, "Yeah, this is the perfect movie." Yeah. Mm. Then yeah, yeah, I mean, I agree with him, lah. Yeah. yeah, I mean in terms of like action and all that, not perfect movie and everything lah, but perfect movie when it comes to like action. Yes. Yeah. What about you, Isa? Who who has actually read the manga by the way? Oh, I'm. It, it's still ongoing by the way. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't. I haven't finished it. I'm not as caught up as I would like to be. Uh, but I was extremely excited when they announced this movie. I left the cinema after watching Alita, um, feeling as as though I had one of my favorite mangas had become an anime. Yeah. Right. Like. It was a live-action movie, but it uh, evoked the same kind of feeling when I've been following a manga for a while and they announced like, hey, we're, we're going to turn this into the anime and I'm sitting down and I'm just finished the first season of that. That's what it felt like, mm-hmm. right? Even the fact that um, the story's not great, the acting's not great, uh, the dialogue is so, so bad at certain points. Yeah, right? I was okay with that because in the same way I would be forgiving of an anime adaptation of one of my favorite mangas mm. um, that's fine right mm. sometimes the voice acting isn't great sometimes you know they mess up the storyline all that I just wanted to see these things leap off a page right and go into motion mm. and to have done it in such a beautiful uh, poetic way mm-hmm. on screen I can forgive everything else mm. you know and that to me was like that that was the experience for me right like I, just being able to see it come to life was um, more than enough right mm. and for it to be that great mm. on top of that um, just made it for me um, it's uh, it's one of those things I think Alita is one of those things especially if for those of you who have read the manga you come to realize that even though the story arc and all that the setting itself actually deals with a lot of very existential issues and questions about um, you know technology and identity and you know what's right and what's wrong what's the moral philosophy behind using a particular new brand of tech and things like that much like Ghost in the Shell did mm. but I think for Alita Battle Angel um, that never reaches the surface, right? Mm. And I'm not sure if it's because it's a Hollywood adaptation, much in the same way the Ghost in the Shell Hollywood adaptation never dealt with the deeper things that mm. they did in the anime itself. Uh, so I'm not sure if it's that. But at the same time, Alita... Or maybe it's just an introduction. Yeah, it could be. I mean, like, it's very obvious setup for sequels, right? Yeah. Uh, which I am ho- really hoping for. Yeah, add Norton at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me, I'll be in a sequel, hopefully. If yeah. this makes money. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's been doing very well. Yeah. So, I'm hoping for a sequel as well. It's doing poorly in America, but it's doing very well in Japan and elsewhere. Mm, or yeah. where, you know, where Manga lives. Where Manga lives, yeah. yeah. So, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to see more of that. And hopefully, uh, they are able to go a little bit deeper mm-hmm. in terms of like the tone and how they want to do that. It was just a very good introduction to, the world. to that particular world uh, and I was happy with it for yeah. sure yeah. Um, also um, I mean one of the downsides is a, a complete waste of a now two time Oscar winner Mahashala Ali oh my oh god oh my god yes yeah who uh, what did he win the Oscar for this movie oh no uh, no it's the no. other movie which also shouldn't have won the Oscar <laughs> but uh, I guess I will say that this is actually surprisingly a 7.5 out of 10 for me I really love this I'm gonna give it an 8 Oh snap! I'm gonna give it an eight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's so rare for an manga or anime adaptation to hit this kind of stride, mm. right? And I think that deserves to be celebrated. I mean, so many live action manga failures. anime failures out there. Yeah, you know. So this was yeah, like what you said, lah. 
fresh breath of fresh air lah. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, um, high ratings from all of us. Yeah, uh, man. I mean, go go watch this in the cinema. It's it deserves to be seen on a big screen. I yes, agree. For sure. Yeah. Uh, next up, we will. I will be talking about uh, a bunch of movies and TV shows that my colleagues here have not seen yet. It's a set little segment called Quick Hits. Uh, and we'll be covering uh, a bunch of kind of the smaller titles that maybe don't uh, are not uh, big enough to cover in depth, but are notable as well. Um, firstly, I would like to talk about Happy Death Day to you. Okay, um, I mean, now stop me if this sounds familiar, <laughs> right? Um, a girl wakes up on her birthday, uh, and she is facing a crisis because her birthday brings up long dormant issues with her mother. Uh, but even as she tries to enjoy her birthday party, she suddenly dies, and then she wakes up again, destined to relive the same day over and over again until she can figure out a way not to die. And as a result, perhaps she could use the opportunity to resolve some self-destructive cycles and her issues with her mother. If this sounds like the plot to Russian Doll to you, uh, it's not. It's actually from a movie that came out two years before Russian Doll called Happy Death Day. Um, Happy Death Day is actually really interesting because it kind of meshes together two different types of movies. First is the slasher movie. Yeah. A self-aware slasher movie like Scream. And of course, the the most obvious is Groundhog Day. So yeah. it was it was built as Scream meets Groundhog Day. Uh, and now I know like a lot of people love Russian Doll, as I do, but I think it borrows a lot from Happy Death Day, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, the original Happy Death Day back in 2017 was such a pleasant surprise. So what I assumed to be another derivative slasher flick about a killer on campus turned out to be quite clever, quite endearing, and an immensely fun horror comedy. Uh, this sequel once again bucks expectations by once again introducing us to a bunch of wild, audacious twists uh, into its time loop premise. Lah. Um, it's evolved from horror into a full-on sci-fi adventure um, romp. Okay. Um, it expands with a new, get this, multiverse Wait, murder mystery Because, you know, what you get with time loops is different timelines, right? Yeah, exactly uh, But it's also rooted in, although it's you know about weird quantum physics, you know uh, Star Trek, blah, 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 <laughs> uh, which, you know, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't really need to understand <laughs> You know, it's usually the, the guy who's like, the, the flux capacitor is, you know So therefore, okay, whatever, right? Uh, but it's also very rooted in a lot of emotional stakes. Okay, yeah. so it actually begins, and I, I'm not going to spoil anything that isn't already spoiled in the trailer. Okay. It begins with a minor character from the first movie, who is this Asian kid who turns out to be working on this quantum physics thing of magic for his science project. <laughs> uh, now he's the one being killed, uh, and the day resets for him. So he goes to the only person he knows that has yeah. you know, had this kind of thing, okay. which okay. is a Tree, who is the lead character from the first movie. Uh, as, as we can figure out The time loops are actually A result of his machine And Tree ends up Helping him out Because you know Of course Experience with this type of thing lah. Now this is the first Major uh, First act twist Okay But it's revealed In the trailer For some reason So I'm very pissed off By that It turns out That the killer Who's killing the Asian kid Is the Asian kid From an alternate dimension uh, and, and because You know Time loops Different timelines He's trying to stop This Asian kid From activating his machine lah. Uh, as they're trying to stop this Asian kid, Tree herself gets knocked into a parallel timeline and she has to figure out how to get out of the timeline. But also in that timeline, it has a similar murder mystery to the first movie. 
And because she's not back to the same day as the first movie, she's also her day is again resetting. Oh my goodness! Okay. Uh, so she has to figure out how to stop the time loop, stop the new killer. Because but because this is a parallel timeline, motivations are different, uh, motives are different, characters are slightly different, history is a bit different. So it's a new killer with a new set of circumstances. She has to figure that out too. She has to go back to her original timeline and then fix that. So it's a uh, it's bonkers, right? It, it it really goes so far away from the premise of the first movie that I was very surprised by how ballsy this was. <laughs> um, it's 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 really crazy. I mean, uh, the the emotional crux of the movie, though, and it it kind of hinges on this, is that in the alternate timeline, uh, in the in our main timeline, Tree's mother is dead, la. right? Uh, that's her issue, you know. Uh, and she dies on her birthday. In the alternate timeline, Tree's mother is alive, um, which gives her pause as to whether she wants to go back to her original timeline or not. Uh, and I think it's a uh, it's an emotional beat that's quite explored quite well uh, and and quite um it made me cry uh much like the first movie surprisingly made me cry towards the end uh, uh so that's the major conflict and 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 keep in mind guys this is just the first act you know and then like things get weirder from there like there are more uh. conceits and more time travel things that is going on uh so it's pretty wild that a horror slasher has turned into this um a huge part of why Happy Death Day to You succeeds is because of its lead actress Jessica Roth who is uh incredible she's like has this irresistible energy she pulls off scream queen rom-com lead dramatic anchor and badass heroine each very well um there there are many bonkers directions this franchise goes to but it would not work if roth wasn't so multifaceted and goddamn talented yeah um the script is wild with great ideas you know across multiple genres but the thing is despite its brilliant concepts it actually isn't written very well uh, it sounds messy Yeah it sounds messy And it, it's up to Jessica Roth To make it work To make us invested really? In what, what she does that. And oh, the, oh boy she does You know You're so invested In her character And specifically her performance If the first was Cream meets Groundhog Day This is pure Legends of Tomorrow <laughs> Okay The only show that I can That I can even Like remotely come Comes close to this And, that, and does this on an episodic basis In Legends of Tomorrow This feels like a Legends episode And if you think that's an insult It's not I love Legends of Tomorrow Okay okay uh, now one key point is That you have to watch The first movie For this movie To make sense Alright A lot of major 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 plot points Hinge on very Minor details On the first movie That you might forget Or you will forget But if you watch this Back to back right It's so rewarding Okay And it, okay. it uh, Much like how Russian Doll season 1 Doesn't quite Uncover the mystery Of the time loop yeah. Happy Death Day Happy Death Day The first movie Did not at, at all address why the time loop is happening She just solved who the killer was And stopped herself from being killed And then the time loop was broken But you don't know why the time loop exists Or, or what not right. But this one explains everything And broadens its uh, world actually, Plural worlds uh, <laughs> Into many in- incredible like sequels uh, That you can do You know, um, It's just branched out It's, uh, it's universe and law uh, so well um, I, This is uh, 8.5 out of 10 for me I really love Happy Death Day to you wow, okay. And the first movie was an 8 out of 10 So I really love that That's all um, so yeah Highly recommend Happy Death Day to you Watch Happy Death Day first I can't emphasize that enough mm. Next up We'll be talking about <coughs> The second season Of uh, The Dragon Prince uh, Created by Avatar The Last Airbenders uh, Aaron Ezas. Uh The first season Of The Dragon Prince Which I watched completely uh, Was a promising All ages fantasy And it had its momentum Somewhat hindered By pacing issues And a mountain of world building Yeah uh, Now with the setup Out of the way um, Season 2 Uh Feels like it's an opportunity to step up for the series. Right. I have not finished the season, so and neither has Hadi. Uh, so maybe no. um, Isa, who has finished the season, can uh, tell us. Oh, is the season two of Dra- Dragon Prince live up to its promise? Is it worth it? 
Yeah, it, does it come close to Avatar: The Last Airbender? Oh for no, example? no, not at all. I think like we are in a period of time where even some of the kids' movies that we've seen, mm. like, uh, well, well, I mean, the obvious ones would be like *Cow in San Diego* mm. that we reviewed, also Netflix, and yeah. on *Avatar* and all of that. Like, we've got so many good kids' movies, uh, kids series out right now. Um, *Dragon Prince* continues to be just that, right? Uh, the bar doesn't go any higher than that. Uh, and while season one was a kind of like a uh, kids meditation on what the complexities of war um, season 2 focuses a bit more on the idea of death mm-hmm. right and how to kind of like introduce that idea to um, you know um, both both princes right because now they, they find out that the father is dead mm-hmm. dead so to speak uh, and how they kind of like deal with it in the midst of having this kind of action adventure. Um, it shifts away from the original trio to include uh, both the siblings, mm-hmm. right, who are currently pursuing them. Oh, yes. And uh, they, are, they, meet part, they meet part ways and then there's a whole conflict that rises kind of out of that. Um, season 2 suffers from the same problems that Season 1 has. Pacing. Uh, pacing. Uh, it has a serious problem with that And as cute as it has been So far um, I th- still think the animation is great uh, It is still very very slow And it doesn't get to the point quick enough mm. uh, It lingers in portions that I feel Are unnecessary and unimportant Not just to the characters themselves But to the overall story arc mm. right? Uh, and we never quite get there yet You mm. know it's, uh, this, it's basically the really really long journey to Mordor <laughs> Oh wow Right And yeah. instead of cutting away To everybody else We are just following Oh wow um, Them there um, So yeah I mean Is it worth it? No Not really I mean like It was an easy watch Right It didn't really take Me that much time Or that much attention For that matter Right Just to understand What was going on uh, I don't know Like we said In season 1 That maybe this has potential mm-hmm. But now that we're Two seasons since I'm not so sure anymore Right There are plenty of other Better things to watch mm-hmm. uh, There are flashes Of emotional quality That you would find In like your avatar Especially Similarities to um, You know The whole group dynamic That, that Aang has Together with uh, Korra uh, not with Korra uh, oh, sorry, uh, um, with, with Toph and Toph. all of that right? Like mm. There are flashes of those moments But they are rare And far, few and far between Katara Yeah How would you rate this Second season? Uh, uh, I would give it a 6 Okay oh, Right okay. I mean it's a decent kid series Okay You know uh, But it really doesn't live up to Our idea of what it could possibly be mm. I watched the first episode I was so bored Oh my god Me too I couldn't I couldn't make it uh. I mean I I made it two episodes in Okay Uh, I think the hang up is that I'm expecting too much from this series Yeah Mm. I mean considering his past work with Avatar Avatar and Korra Korra, right So Last Airbender and uh, The Legends of Korra Were were exceptional pieces of work Yeah For sure The Last Airbender especially With its emotional Mm. Um uh, twist, you know, uh, the journey of Ang and his his growth, you know how 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 I mean every single character had this really sympathetic growth arc or like really I I cannot explain. It's one of the best series ever made, lah. Mm-hmm. Avatar: The Last Airbender is a near perfect animation. Yes, it is. So when you have the Dragon Prince and how draggy it is, and then you don't have the 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 action that Avatar: The Last Airbender had. You know, mm-hmm. with the the research going into the move set and all this, the the martial arts, uh, kung fu stuff that was going on, mm-hmm. it it feels very bland. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It yeah. does. It, it. I'm not. 
I don't know if it's the Dragon Prince scene feels like a lot more personal a story, right? Uh, and and let a lot less epic. Uh, there's no action to carry you through. There's a very little, like the amount of conflict in a given season is like two. Like you have two points of conflict mm-hmm. that gets dragged out over the entire season, as opposed to having it being episodic. And and that in and of itself, right, creates a problem. I do have to say that the second half of the season did get a lot better. Mm. But if you struggle through the first four episodes, then I don't think it's worth. Um, putting up with yeah. Okay okay. Uh, next up we'll be moving on To another Netflix thing uh, This time it's a movie uh, It's called Velvet Buzzsaw Which sees Jake Gyllenhaal Reunite with a Nightcrawler Writer director Dan Gilroy uh, This is a body horror satire About the preening pretensions Of LA's fine art scene uh, The basic premise involves A series of killer paintings Literally Killer paintings Made by an unknown artist uh, The pieces are discovered Appropriated And then exploited By competing art galleries From there The haunting, the haunted paintings Annex gory punishment On those who have allowed Their greed To get in the way of art um, A lot of his Art world satire Is based on caricature uh, So it doesn't really Delve deeper Besides making fun Of stereotypes um, That superficial aspect Means that Velvet Basso Lacks the teeth Teeth and depth Of their previous Collaboration Nightcrawler uh, Nightcrawler's exploration of the paparazzi, for example, is a million times smarter, a million times darker, and a million times more affecting than this. That being said, this, supernatu- this supernatural evisceration of snobbish materialism, posing as culture, is gleefully entertaining in a B-movie kind of way. It is a 6 out of 10. Oh. But Nightcrawler's was an excellent movie. It was a 10 out of 10. Exactly. <laughs> Nightcrawler, it was an Oscar contender movie. This is a drop. <laughs> this is a huge drop. Oh. But I mean, it's still entertaining. Okay. I give it a pass. Uh, 6 All out right. of 10. Uh, next up, uh, we have Big Mouth, which uh, returns for a very special Valentine's Day episode called My Furry mm. Valentine. While season 3 is still some ways off, uh, Big Mouth returns very briefly. Yep. Uh, this animated series, you know, it's about puberty struck 7th graders and their literal hormone monsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, has always been hilariously gross and overwhelmingly lewd, but My Furry Valentine takes its built-in carnal humor to whole new levels. I think this is ex- outrageously uh, lewd. Yeah. Uh, because after all, what other holiday would make preteens more stressed about their sexual awakening than mm-hmm. Valentine's Day? Uh, there is finally a, pro- finally a proper arc for Matthew, the only gay boy in school, yes. uh, as he struggles to give a shit about the holiday in question. Uh, there is Jesse, who's coming to terms with her mother's sexuality. And meanwhile, Jay, <laughs> Jay has the funniest story arc, having trouble juggling two relationships between two pillows, yeah. one male and female. Um, so I guess he is bi-pillow. Uh, <laughs> so I mean He's trying to fuck both While enjoying neither Which in itself Is a great metaphor For relationships And um, and those are just The side plots yep. The main story Involves Andrew and Nick As usual uh, Nick has the heartwarming story As he spends the whole episode um, Fighting and ultimately Reconciling with his Hormone monstrous Connie yes. uh, A natural art Considering a boy Will have trouble Adapting to a new Female hormone monster But oh my god The Andrew storyline Will make your skin crawl <laughs> um, He's hell bent On winning back His crush Missy On Valentine's Day uh, and it goes from funny to like absolutely horrifying. Um, at first, it's the casual fumbling romantic attempts, you know, mm-hmm. a bit rom commy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as he gets more desperate, Andrew actually gets kind of scary. Yeah. With the way he approaches Missy, um, like he could one day be a school shooter kind of scary, you know. What? Like it's it's quite troubling, like his behavior, and it's tackled very smartly, and it's probably the best thing Big Moth has ever done. Yeah. Um, I I love this particular episode. Uh, you saw it as well, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, What do you yeah, think right. about it? Uh. 
I mean, like, there's there's no more prime opportunity for a series like Big Mouth than Valentine's Day, right? Mm-hmm. And definitely one of the better Valentine's Day specials I've ever seen, period. Yeah. Um, I think the ideas that they're exploring this time around are just an extension of what they did in um, this most recent season, you know? Uh, it didn't feel like it was forced. It didn't feel like uh, it was necessarily anything, like... Uh, outlandish or anything of the sort i really enjoy connie and nick's arc this time around i felt that it was very nuanced and it was very funny and it was very heartwarming uh but at the same time like all the little bits about toxic masculinity that they've been bringing up uh, that they brought up and how really terrifying i was genuinely terrified Mm. at the way that he was acting yeah uh Shook me a little Right yeah, Because yeah. it takes place um, It's a lot of like Very feel good uh, If somewhat awkward mm. um, Moments of storytelling Right um, Overall I really enjoyed it I'm looking forward to the next season as well uh, I thought it was an 8 out of 10 How would yeah, you rate uh, it? Easily 8 out of 10 for me too um, The last I thought I will be covering on Quick Kids Is called Get this This is a mouthful The man who killed Hitler And then The Bigfoot That's right That is one title The man who killed Hitler And then The Bigfoot uh, despite its amazing title Which I'm going to say one more time The Man Who Killed Hitler And then The Bigfoot okay. It's actually more serious And less pulpy Than it lets on um, Sam Elliott Plays a gruff and weary American legend uh, A role that his ma- that him And his mustache Is just made for uh, Who's led quite a life As his title implies um, Two of his biggest Accomplishments Are in the title uh, But more than a flashback To his Past adventures, this movie is more of a somber meditation on aging, loneliness, and the realization that your best days are behind you. Um, it's more like Logan than Indiana Jones. However, those two parts don't quite mesh or live up to its emotional themes, so it's neither as good as Logan nor as good as Indiana Jones, you know. So it's neither um, dramatically artful seriousness and it's not as fun adventure, you know. So that being said, it's, it's kind of a dour uh, but solid character study. It's a 6 out of 10 for me. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I what think else? To wrap up this episode, uh, we're gonna delve into the poll list. Oh yeah. Uh, we didn't have the poll list last month, but we have it this month. Uh, I'll be talking about two particular comic book titles. Mm-hmm. Uh, first is uh a new DC comic mm. called Female Furies. Mm. Uh, this is basically hashtag times up in apocalypse. Mm. Uh, so it's about uh, the apocalypse patriarchy and about the female furies. Uh, kind of um. Me Too Awakening Shall okay. we say uh, It's a it's funny It's feminist And it's all around fantastic um, It's written by someone Called Cecile uh, Castellucci uh, Who also wrote The awesome Shade The Changing Changelingo miniseries So mm. uh, please check it out as well The book focuses on Granny Goodness And her elite All-female warrior squad Of Furies Which range from More famous characters Like Big Bada And Matt Harriet To smaller characters Like Aure- Aureli And uh, Lashina Who I actually Haven't heard of Before this show uh, Before this series uh, writer Castellucci and uh, artist Adriana Mello paint a compelling picture of the Furious' constant humiliation, struggle, and abuse, uh, subservient to the whims and appetites of very powerful men like Darksiders. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of a hashtag MeToo awakening on a demonic planet where everyone is evil, including the Furies, <laughs> is super fascinating. Um, like Tom King's Mr. Miracle miniseries last year, new writers have been able to mine fresh psychological and emotional depth from Jack Kirby's Fourth World. 
Uh, and but the difference is while Tom King's Mr. Miracle felt like an intimate character study that you kind of see on HBO, yeah. uh, Female Furies is more in line with Kubik's grand sensibilities. It feels very operatic in skill, mm-hmm. style, and dialogue. Uh, very highly rated for me. This is nine out of ten, and wow. it's only been um, I think two or three issues. Right. So I uh, really love this, and I recommend that you pick it up. Nice. nice. Next up is a graphic novel called Comics Will Break Your Heart. Mm. So uh, this is a bit of a meta narrative. Uh, it's okay. You know how comic publishers are notorious for mistreating people responsible for creating the properties that have gone out to make billions for corporations, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The passing of Stanley uh, back in November reignited conversations about his legacy yeah. and how he used his position as an editor to take credit for Marvel characters and concepts that were perhaps, you know, more or less created by his collaborators. Yeah. Like I mentioned Jack Kirby, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but this question of credit and compensation goes far beyond one person than just Stanley. Yeah. Uh, in this book, uh, Faith Aaron uh, Hicks, who is the the author of this book, explores the history of exploitation. Uh, in a very interesting way, in a kind of YA adult novel kind of thing. Uh, about two teenage heirs of a fictional superhero comic called The Tomorrow Man right. uh, which is being adapted into a $200 million movie uh, it actually starts out as a love story between the teenage leads uh, Miriam and Walden it establishes a romantic attraction between the two teens that is quite palpable and very cute la. Um, the thing is Miriam's family should be rich um, her grandfather was the co-creator of that Smash It comic series mm-hmm. uh, but he sold his rights to the series to his co-creator in the 1960s for practically nothing uh, now Miriam is dead broke. Uh, you know uh, how can she afford college when her, ba- her family can barely um, keep a roof over their heads? Mm, as if she didn't have enough to worry about, Miriam's life gets more complicated when she falls in love with uh, the aforementioned Walden. Uh, and it turns out Walden is the grandson of the man who defrauded uh, Miriam's grandfather, uh, mm. the, and is the heir to the fortune. Uh, this teen romance gives Hicks the opportunity to teach younger readers, younger readers about. The inequality that pervades the superhero industry, yeah. and and hopefully the lessons of the past will teach valuable lessons to, uh, comic book creators of the future, lah, to not let their their works get taken away, f- for peanuts, you know. Yeah. Um, it's happened too many times. You hear stories about uh, people who have created major properties, living in their cars, being bankrupt right now, unable to pay for, uh, surgeries and stuff like that. You know, their GoFundMe's for all these sort of things, lah. So. Uh, I think this is a a good YA book to teach younger readers about. You know, maybe like all the superheroes that you see on the big screen, they were created by someone who's poor, you know, you know, who didn't get any credit or any money, besides that one little like uh, created by thing on the screen. You know, uh, I thought this this was a very valuable read, uh, very interesting. This is an eight out of ten for me. Nice. Uh, so that wraps it up this month. Uh, next month. Oh boy, our first big title of the year. Oh no. Captain Marvel is in. Mm. What? what? Uh, so the reviews will be coming in. And it looks pretty good. Yeah. Uh, oh, I mean, there are a bunch of reviews on Rotten yeah. Tomatoes from people who have not seen the movie. Yeah, but those are, uh, those fuck are those them. just fuckboys. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, who, um, I mean, for lack of a better term, hate women. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we, we will make our own judgments. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll see it for ourselves, see how yeah. good it is. Of course, we mentioned Jordan Peele's new movie, Us. <coughs> Super excited for that, yeah, man. Me too. Uh, we'll be also wrapping up the first season of Gen Lock. Yes, uh, yeah, I'll Roost- be catching out on that too. Rooster Teeth's new series on yeah. starring Michael B. Jordan, uh, Missy <laughs> Williams, a yeah. uh, bunch of uh, big guys like the yeah, yeah, yeah. and all of that. Uh, one of the most exciting things that I'm 
more than Jen Lock, more than us, more than Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really excited to see Love, Death, and Robots on Netflix, yeah. oh, okay. which looks incredible. It's uh, by David Fincher yeah. and Tim Miller, who who directed the first Deadpool. It looks incredible. The yeah, animation. Um, and I'll be covering smaller things like the Kid Who Be King, which is um, the Afurian. I'm uh, gonna watch that. Yeah, Joe Cornish yeah. movie. Uh, there's uh, Miracle Workers level 16, uh, yeah. and a uh, Mob Psycho 100, which <laughs> will be wrapping up a great second season. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I am currently wrapping up. Finishing the last maybe hundred pages of a gigantic novel called Black Leopard Red Wolf, uh, which I will be covering Who's next month. Who's that by? It is by Marlon James. It's uh, a great uh, fantasy novel. Its its premise is what if Game of Thrones was in Africa, which is a very simplified oh, premise. Oh, okay, know? okay, that's very simple. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah but yeah. it's deeper, and I will delve into why it's deeper than that. All right, definitely. And also uh, a sh- cute little graphic novel called Death Wins a Goldfish. It's about a uh, deaf who's forced to go on vacation, mm. and uh, his travel journal, what he does. Okay. Uh, it's a nice little meditation on why we shouldn't, you know, overwork. There's ourselves. another book. Uh, it is a graphic novel. Oh shit! Yeah. Uh, so that will be next month. But uh, till then, this has been Hit Zero. I'm Hardy. I'm Aisa. We'll catch you then. Bye bye. Bye bye.